0: Okay, this morning we return one last time, I promise this is the last one, one last time to this famous passage of Scripture, John fourteen, one through six, where Jesus both comforts his disciples and makes a personal declaration that captures the very heart of the gospel, particularly in John fourteen six. So join me one more time. We're going to read John fourteen one through six. I hope you have it memorized because Right now, we're going to hear the scripture from my son and my daughter-in-law, Levi and Anna West. Hi, everyone. My name is Levi West. This is my wife, Anna West. Hi. And we'll be reading your scripture today. Today, we'll be reading from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Let's read together. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the Word of God. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Church, will you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you that you have brought us together as a church, and I thank you for family, both my family and the family that is this church. And and that family is growing, Lord, and and comprises now of people from many places uh, around the country and even in different places around the world as we gather in the online community this morning. And so I pray your blessing upon every home, upon every heart uh, that is within the sound of my voice right now, that we would be grateful and we would celebrate you. That we would be drawn to the way, the truth, and the life. That we would filter every thought through the lenses of Christ. And we would understand that through Jesus, we have a way to be reconciled to the Father. And we have a home, a room in the Father's house. It is our hope for this life and a life to come. Today, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us what our Lord meant when he said, I am the life, and that this life would so infect us, would so animate our very existence, that it would be a life that brings life and hope and blessing to the world in your name. Come to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well... If you recall from my message last Sunday, and I don't assume you watch every week, but I, if, last, last week I quoted the great reformer Arthur Pink, uh, who said the following. He said, after the fall of humanity, all people have three essential needs, reconciliation, illumination, and regeneration. Now, these are big words, and they all end with shun. <laughs> We've already looked at the way that, well, the way. Jesus said, I am the way. And that is reconciliation. I am the way to the Father. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the person. He is the process. He is the pathway to reconciliation with the Father. Last week, we looked at this, this need that every person has of illumination, of, of discerning what is true. And Jesus said, I am the truth. And we looked at that uh, in the three L's, right? He is Lord, he is the Logos, and he is the light. And uh, so powerful for us to understand these claims of Jesus when he says, I am, you stop and take notice. I am the way I am the truth. And today we're looking to this great human need of regeneration. And we, we hear Jesus say, I am the life. Okay. So of course the title of my message is the life and it will fall under three subheadings. Number one, the garden, number two, the kingdom and number three, the life. Now, Many of you may know this, maybe some of you don't, but I am a gardener. I really am. I love it. I've worked a garden now for 24 years. I've actually went back and thought about that. 24 years I've worked a garden in various uh, places where we've lived. Of course, that doesn't include my, my father's garden and my grandfather's garden, which I had the opportunity to work as a kid. But my own garden, you know, in our own home, I, I love to garden. I love to work the ground. I love to plant and, and nurture and watch things grow. And, of course, I love to eat. I'm very good at it. So, yeah, I mean, I love to garden. I ho- I'm hopeful that my children will inherit my love for gardening because it is a long and meaningful tradition in my family. So, anyways, I was in the garden Monday, Memorial Day, with my youngest son, Caleb, and my daughter, Kylie. Kylie. And I recruited them to come help me. It was time to put up the rabbit fence and to sink the four by fours in the ground. We wire those and put string on them for the pole beans, the Kentucky Wonder pole beans that will grow up there later in the summer. So naturally, when I brought out the post hole diggers, my daughter Kylie says, I want to dig the holes. Now, I knew that my four foot nine. Uh, nine-year-old daughter was not going to be able to handle the postal digger. But you know something about a dad and a daughter, you can't hardly say no to that creature. And so I was like, well, okay. And so I showed her how to use it, and I handed it to her and said, okay, you dig the holes. And I went on to get some other things going on with Caleb. So a few minutes later, I looked back, and of course, she had it stuck in that wet Kansas clay she couldn't get it out. She couldn't make it go down any further. And so she had found a stick, and she was tapping on the post hole digger, trying to get it to go further in the ground. And so, you know, I mean, the bottom line was is that Kylie did not have the height or the strength to use that tool, but she was determined to get the hole dug. Well, once the digger was stuck and so on, I, I relieved her of the assignment. I asked my 15-year-old son, Caleb, to dig the holes. And he was taller. He was stronger. But Caleb still lacked understanding regarding how the post hole digger worked and he's still uh, a little thin in terms of getting the power to slam that tool into earth in order to dig a sufficient hole. So of course I joined him in the work, uh, we took turns, I showed him some strategies for using the post hole digger and of course we got the holes dug and then Kylie helped us to fill the holes and tamp the dirt and make sure that the poles were secure and straight. Now, by the way, like these are the things that dads love. I mean, Father's Day is coming up and going. We just love this, right? It was fun working together with my kids, imparting some knowledge, working together to get, uh, to get everything set, to make things grow and to feed our family. I mean, it really was a special time. Now, I was just thinking about this. I was reflecting upon it. You know, if you're familiar with Genesis 1 and 2, the story of humanity begins in the garden with a son and a daughter and a dad. The father charges his son Adam and his daughter Eve to take care of the garden. He 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 charged them to rule over all living things. In other words, God put human beings over his creation. He gave us jobs to do with all the authority and freedom that we needed to do those jobs. But notice the assumption was that the father would be right there with us, doing the heavy lifting and teaching us how to use the tools to do the work he had assigned to us, just as I was present to help Caleb and Kylie accomplish the gardening task that I had assigned to them. However, in Genesis 3, we then read of the fall, right? The fall of humanity. And the fall is a simple story that captures the rebellious heart of human beings In essence, Adam says, I just want to do it by myself. And God grants his wits. And as a result, human beings went from working as those accompanied by and filled with the eternal kind of life and presence of the Father to those who work only on their own power. And this is what the Bible refers to as the sweat of the brow. Such is why ever since the fall, human beings have been quite a bit like Kylie out there in the garden, trying to dig a hole by tapping the digger with a stick. In other words, we know we have a job to do. We know that we've been given tools. We feel responsible, like we are supposed to make a difference. But we clearly don't have what it takes to get the job done. We need the Father. But sin separates us from the Father. Apart from the Father, we're spiritually bankrupt. And this is the plight of the human condition. This garden picture is helpful as we think about then the claim that Jesus makes in John fourteen fourteen six when he states, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Jesus, access to the eternal kind of life we were made for is now available through him. It is precisely because of what Jesus just said that our hearts are not to be troubled. Jesus is the way to the Father. He is the truth of the Father. He is the life of the Father. He is the life we have always wanted. Let me move to my second subheading, the kingdom. If I could point you to one chapter of one book that so beautifully captures the plight of the human condition and our need for the life in Christ, it would be the first chapter of Dallas Willard's famous The Divine Conspiracy. Uh, Willard passed away a few years ago, but he, he was just a brilliant, brilliant writer. He begins by observing the absurdity of our cultural condition. We touched on this last week a little bit. You know, he wrote it in the late 90s, but Willard's descriptions and insights sound as though he was writing about the last 15 months in American history. He says, of the bizarre selections and juxtapositions imposed by what is called news... You only have to stay tuned and you can arrive at a perpetual state of confusion and ultimately despair with no effort at all. And we talked about that last week. We just want to turn it off, right? Amidst all of that, though, he says there's still hope and that hope remains, and that the hope remains in an invitation that many of us are far too familiar with and we've, we've underestimated its power. He says, the invitation to make a pilgrimage into the heart of God is available and relevant today as it has ever been. He writes, God's desire for us is that we should live in him. He sends among us the way to himself. That shows what, in his heart of hearts, God is really like, indeed, what reality is really like. The way to the Father is Jesus. Willard writes, Jesus offers himself as God's doorway, listen, into the life of That is truly life. Let me ask you a question. What is the life that is truly life? What is the life that is truly life? That's the question of the day. And it's a really good question. It's a question everybody actually is asking. What is the real life? What is the authentic life? What is the life that is truly life? So, that's what we're going to wrestle with today. You know, the Greek word for life used by Jesus in John fourteen six, is the word zoe. And we've talked about this before. There's different words. But zoe is, is the word that is used to say one's lifetime or just life generally. Or, in the New Testament, oftentimes this zoe, when spoken by Jesus, is the eternal kind of life, the life in the Father. And so, I'm going to give you a lot of scripture a lot of scripture as we get towards the end of my message. But before we do that, I want to take just a minute and unpack this concept of Zoe of, of the life in three ways that we often think of it within scripture and within a biblical worldview. First uh, is the eternal life. Whenever we hear the life that Jesus comes to give us the life that he is the life. Most of the time we We imagine the eternal life that we will enjoy in heaven with the Father. Now, that's not wrong. That's accurate. Jesus states clearly in John 3.16 that those who believe in him will inherit eternal life as opposed to perishing in their sin. So, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, all Christians should hold a heavenly vision in their heart. That's important. That hope of heaven helps us to endure, to live sacrificially for Christ and others, and to hold loosely to the things of this world. Secondly... We oftentimes think of the life as our best life or the best kind of life. Uh, We're we're inclined to to think of the life as the right way to live. Um, It's the best way to live that's pleasing to God. We want to live our lives like Jesus lived his life. We want to do what's right, what is ethical, what is biblical. So we might think of the life as the Christian lifestyle or the Christian ethic or maybe even to some degree the Christian biblical worldview. Again, I don't think that's wrong or inaccurate. That's a complementary sense to the eternal life. But when we talk about regeneration, we're we're really talking about the third way to think of this concept of the life, the zoe that Jesus is, and it's what I would call the animating life. This is very practical. This is not when we die, and it's, it's not moralistic or ethical per se. It really is incredibly relevant to our right now, to our vocations, our relationships, our interactions with the world. It is this idea that the life of God fills and animates our ordinary lives. God lives, God wills, God works through us in ways that we could never live, will, or work on our own. This captures the essence of regeneration. Regeneration. We were spiritually dead, and as, as we come into Christ and come, Christ comes into us, we are made alive. We are resurrected spiritually into spiritually alive creatures. It is the new life of the believers. It's essentially what is meant when people say, I've been born again. Um, we're transformed from those who are spiritually dead to those who are spiritually alive. Now, there are many ways to describe the animating life and work of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. But this morning, I will present this concept, leveraging the language of kingdom. Why kingdom? I knew you were going to ask that question. Well, if you recall, the first message of Jesus, when he started his earthly message and his earthly teaching, you remember what it was? He said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew 4, 17. So Jesus leveraged this imagery of kingdom to invite people into the eternal life of God, and therefore it is completely appropriate for us to do the same. Now I know what you're thinking. What does the kingdom of God at hand have to do with Jesus saying, I am the life? You're so full of good questions today. Excellent question. I'm glad you asked. Well,. Let me show you. First of all, we must define kingdom. A kingdom is the range of the effective will of the one who reigns. Okay? A kingdom is the range of the effective will of the one who reigns. So wherever the will of the king has dominion, that is his kingdom. Now, the first century Jews lived in the kingdom of Caesar. Caesar. The ruler of the Roman Empire, Caesar's effective will held dominion over thousands of square miles in the ancient world so people understood kingdoms in the first century. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Willard suggests that every last one of us has a kingdom, or a queendom, or a government, a realm that is uniquely our own, where our choice determines what happens. Willard writes here's a truth that reaches into the deepest part of what it means to be a person. The deepest part of what it means to be a person is that you have a kingdom. You have a domain. A place where your choice determines what happens. He says, you know, if you really look at history, to actually dehumanize another person, to take away their personhood, is to take away all of their choices, and diminish them to the point where they have no effective power to choose or determine anything about their own lives. To dehumanize a person is to take away his or her kingdom. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. I want you to think with me about the implications of what Willard is saying. You know, since the late 18th century... Darwinian evolution, along with atheistic philosophies, have led us to see ourselves as accidental machines that evolved over billions of years by time and chance. We are blobs of cells. There's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no God, no purpose, no greater good, no personal kingdom where our choices matter. If we're being honest, if we just go to where it goes, this Darwinian perspective reduces a person to nothing but ordinary matter plus time plus chance. But here's what we know about human beings. We cannot stand to be ordinary. We cannot stand to be thought of as more of the same. Every man, woman, and child wants to be extraordinary, special, and unique in some way. I mean, have you considered the possibility that this might explain why we now have 46 different terms to describe sexual attraction, behavior, and orientation? Might this explain our culture's obsession with body art and piercing? Listen, tell me that I'm ordinary, and I'll prove to you that you're wrong. I'm anything but ordinary, and that's going to be true for any human being. We can't stand that. And yet, given what we've been told by popular science, by the philosophy of our age, I mean, you can tell me I'm special. You can tell me I'm all of that, but you've already told me I'm a blob of cells, that I'm an accidental conglomeration of matter plus time plus chance creates quite a bit of tension which is why the order of our day is absurdity absurdity sells absurdity is our motto it's kind of the language of the meme and uh, the language of our culture listen nobody is special if all of life is a product of blind chance. Such is why the absurd is in. Absurdities Our reality. We all want to be special, but nobody's really special, so let's all act like we're special when we actually know we're only blobs of cells. That sounds absurd because it is. You see, the Bible provides a radically different picture of personhood. Willard writes, we are made to have dominion within an appropriate domain of reality. This is the core of the likeness or image of God in us and is the basis of the destiny for which we were formed. We are, all of us, never ceasing spiritual beings with a unique eternal calling to count for good in God's great universe. In creating human beings, God made them to rule, to reign, to have dominion in a limited sphere. Only so... Can we be persons? Now, remember the garden. Even though we were designed by God to reign over our little kingdoms where we actually have a say about what gets done, that's very biblically accurate, the original design was that we would reign with God. Willard writes, God assigned to us to collectively rule over all living things on earth, Genesis one 28 through 28-30. However, God equipped us for this task by framing our nature to function in a conscious, personal relationship of interactive responsibility with Him. We are meant to exercise our rule only in union with God as He acts with us. He intended to be our constant companion or co-worker in the creative enterprise of life on earth. That is what His love for us means in practical terms. Lamentably, we fell away from our intended divine context and from the task for which we are by nature fitted. We mistrusted and distanced ourselves from God and then, very naturally, from one another. In our arrogance and fear, we flounder through our existence on our own. I just want you to picture something. I come out to the garden on Monday. I bring out the post-hole and... All the stuff to, for wiring and, you know, the rabbit cage, all that stuff. And I just lay it on the ground, all the tools on the ground. I explain what we're going to do. And Caleb and Carly say, Dad, just leave. We've got this. We do it by ourselves. How is that going to work out? Probably not very good, right? They couldn't have actually done that by themselves. They needed Dad. And I would have never asked them to do it without me. The whole plan was we're going to do it together. I'll show you how to do it. I'll help you do it. I'll leverage my strength and my wisdom to help you as children to do this work. And I'm going to delight in it. I could do it by myself. I want to include you. I want us to do this together as part of our relationship. Right? Can you see that sin has not only corrupted our souls, but sin has corrupted our kingdom? Our little kingdoms have been corrupted by this since and has broken the arrangement that God instituted, an arrangement that included His active presence and power in our lives, helping us to rule and reign over that space which we've been given dominion. Without Him, without our Father, we flounder. How many of you know what it means to flounder through life on your own? (laughs) I I, I totally relate with that. Listen, pastors can flounder with the best of them when we try to go it alone. So our little kingdoms, our everyday ordinary lives, were always designed to flourish alongside of and as part of God's big kingdom with his presence, his power, his presence moving along with us, helping us to manage our little peace that he's given to us. This is why the message of Matthew 4.17 is so important. When Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's inviting us to step into, back into the arrangement as it was intended. The kingdom of God is drawn near to restore the arrangement that God established in creation. That our little kingdoms would be empowered, animated, and carried along by His great, mighty kingdom. That our little lives would be empowered and animated by His eternal kind of life. You starting to get the picture? Listen, here's what Willard says of the kingdom of God. God's own kingdom, or rule, is the range of his effective will, where what he wants done is done. The person of God himself and the action of his will are the organizing principles of his kingdom, but everything that obeys those principles, whether by nature or by choice, is within his kingdom. The kingdom of God cannot be shaken, and it is totally good. It has never been in trouble, and it never will be. It is not something that human beings produce or ultimately can hinder. We do have an invitation to be part of it, but if we refuse, we only hurt ourselves. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Uh, Imagine, if you will, that you're a farmer in Kansas. Some of you don't have to imagine hard on this. You grew up in farms in Kansas. But imagine that you're a Kansas farmer in 1938. Why 1938? 1938 is when electricity made it to rural Kansas. So just imagine your farmer, in 1938, the Brown Atchison Electric Cooperative has finally made it out your way and they're offering to string some wire to your farm so that you can have access to electricity. Now you've heard about this electricity. You've heard it does some pretty powerful things. But, you know, you've functioned with it, you know, without having any electricity your whole life, and you've got along okay, so you're a little bit skeptical. I mean, who needs electricity anyways? Short answer, everyone does. I mean, we all do, right? The powered life is a whole lot better than life with no power. So the message of the electric company is simple and very akin to the message in Matthew 4. Repent. Electricity is at hand. In other words, turn from the unpowered, exhausting way you've been working and living and plug into the power that is now at hand, a power that will increase your productivity by more than you could possibly hope or imagine and make your life a whole lot easier and more enjoyable. This is precisely what is happening when Jesus proclaims to the world, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. The call is to turn away from an unpowered way of living that is corrupted by sin so that we might plug into the kingdom of God which is now at hand through Jesus. Our little exhausting kingdoms will be lit up like a Christmas tree when the animating life of Jesus, the person and presence of God's kingdom, the way Back into relationship with the Father, the restoration of the way things were supposed to be. The life. The life that we've always wanted. The life that's been desperately missing. See, this is a life that not even death can conquer. I love the old hymn There's no power of hell, no scheme of man. There's none that will contend with the life that is the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, how do we have access to the life? How do we actually go about connecting, to plugging into the kingdom of God? Another great question. First, we repent. Repent. We repent. I know that sounds like a religious word. It's really not complicated. We turn. We turn from our old way of floundering along by our own power. We repent. We turn. And second, we pray and we ask. We humbly ask to be connected to the life. We call upon the name of Jesus, who is the life. The life for the forgiveness of sins. And we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit who comes and resides with us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit empowering us with the animated life of Christ in us. Uh, there's a story of a man, of uh, two stories. His name was Frank Lawback. He was a missionary in the Philippines back uh, in the late 20s. He was very discouraged by the lack of progress in his work. This is common with missionaries. It's a hard road to hoe. And so Frank decided in January of 1930 that he was going to consciously turn his mind to Christ one second out of every minute. By the way, I've tried that this week. It's way harder than you think. But this is what he committed to do. For one second out of every minute, just Jesus, turn his mind to Christ. Be open to whatever Jesus wants to say to him. One second out of every minute. According to his testimony... Within four weeks' time, his life was complete. Here's what he wrote. Within four weeks, he said, I feel simply carried along each hour, doing my part in a plan which is far beyond myself. This sense of cooperation with God in little things is what so astonishes me, for I have never felt it this way before. I need something and turn around to find it waiting for me. I must work to be sure, but there is God working along with me. That's a beautiful picture. Church, let me ask a question. What would happen if we were all plugged into the kingdom of God? What, what would happen if we all devoted one second of every minute to just think of Christ, the life? How, how different would our lives look if we discovered, like Frank Lobach? That God was working with us, that the Father was with us in the garden, in our domain, in our relationships, in our workplace, in our schools, in our church. This is my prayer for colonial. That we would be fully connected, empowered, and submitted to the kingdom of God amongst us. And I am praying for the nuclear power of the Holy Spirit to light up this church for the glory of God and the good of the world. I want the life, every last bit of it. And I hope you do as well. I hope you'll join me in praying for that. I know, it feels like we should be done. I've got one more point, which is the life. I'm actually done preaching. I'm done teaching on this subject. So I'm simply going to finish my message by reading scriptures to you about the life. I spent a lot of time researching that this week, and there's so much here. In fact, I've really kind of come to the conclusion that the whole New Testament is about this. It's about the life. The life that Jesus gave up, that we could have it. His life. He gave up his life that we might have it, that we would inherit his life, his eternal life, the best kind of life, and the power of his life animating us right where we are. All right, so buckle in. I'm just going to read scripture, and then we'll be done. Will you just just follow along with me? In him was life, and the life was light of men. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. For as the father has life in himself, so has he granted the son also to have life in himself. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Paul writes, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. So fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. His divine power, says Peter, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. John writes again, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him and we who are in Him and we are in Him who is true in His Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Jude says, So keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And then in the vision of Revelation, John writes, The spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. It's the word of the Lord. Jesus is the life. Come. may you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this amazing truth that you declared to those who have been estranged from the Father, for those who have been walking in spiritual death living an exhausting life of trying to reign our little kingdom on our own without the power and the help and the provision of the Father that we so need. You made a way for us to be reconciled to the Father, not just when we die and go to heaven, but even now that we might tap into the kingdom of God and once again be restored and reconciled in a relationship where the Father is with us in the garden. Helping us to dig the hole. <laughs> helping us with strength that we can't possibly come up with on our own. Helping us with wisdom, with all the resources of heaven. That we might reign in our place where our, our will has power. And, and, and what we decide does matter. But, but we don't have to do this alone. That your kingdom would empower our kingdom we would live our days in fellowship with the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of the Son. Thank you for making a way. Thank you for being the truth. Thank you for giving us your life. Father, I pray on behalf of even one soul today who's with us, who just recognizes, I get it now, I have been doing this on my own, but I need the Father. I would just invite that person to pray with me today. God, I'm sorry. I am so tired. I'm tired of running from you, of trying to dig this hole by myself. I don't have the strength. Most of us aren't trying to dig a hole. We're trying to dig our way out of a hole. We need you. I need you. Please forgive me of my sin, of my rebellious spirit. I I hand it over to you my whole life. Even this domain that you've given me, these responsibilities, these relationships, my job, my my kids, my spouse, my friends, my, my everything. And I just pray that you would empower me, fill me with you, that I would have this life that I've been missing, that I would become spiritually alive, that I would not feel so alone, that I know... That you are with me, working with me, empowering me to do those things I can never do by myself. Thank you for hearing my prayer. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.